and welcome to episode 14. How have we made it this far so far into the podcast of Teaching Here and There, the podcast about hybrid teaching in higher education. I'm Don Pates. I'm Ivan Sikora. I'm James Rutherford. And you will be listening to a conversation today that we've just held with Professor Brian Beatty. Brian is Associate Professor of Instructional Technologies at San Francisco State University. And we were uh, particularly delighted to get Brian along for the podcast today, because in many ways, uh, Brian's seen as uh, kind of the father of Hyflex, which is a, a term that is often used. Uh, his, uh, his book, which we'll put a note to in the uh, show notes, is uh, basically a guidebook for how to do this stuff that we're all talking about. If you've not read it before, um, then uh, you should certainly take a look because it gives you a good spread across uh, all of the considerations for hybrid flexible courses. So um, that's the introduction. Um, we're going to dive into the conversation. Let's go. We are delighted to welcome to episode 14, Professor Brian Beatty. Those of you with a longer memory of working in the hybrid teaching space may well have encountered his work already. And we're going to dig deep into that and uh, the rest of uh, where Brian is at in this space uh, in the course of this conversation. So, uh, Brian, I'm going to kick off with the first question today. Can you take us back to the starting point, the, the genesis of um, this particular initiative that you've become well associated with? The term high flex is often used interchangeably by a lot of people these days in similar ways to hybrid. Where did you, where did you start in this hybrid teaching space what motivated you why did you get going in here what were your drivers for okay well thank you first of all thank you for inviting me to be part of the conversation today and uh to have a a, a bit of a voice with your audience uh worldwide uh and i'm a, i'm currently a professor at san francisco state university and that's where hyflex started in my journey uh, i came here almost 20 years ago uh, to teach in a fully on or fully face-to-face, -face, fully traditional on-ground uh, graduate program in instructional technologies. We had a few other courses that weren't graduate, but typically it was a graduate program. And one of the things that we found, this was in the early 2000s, like many other graduate programs, at least in the U.S., was that our, our enrollments were, were, were on a downward trend. And that, of course, was concerning to us. Uh, and so our department chair came into one meeting one day, I think it was in 2004, uh, and said, I think I have the answer to our declining enrollment problem. We need to become a fully online program uh, because in our field, a lot of programs were, were flipping graduate programs into online programs. And the faculty, we just kind of looked at each other and thought, we don't teach online. Uh, our students are not online. I don't think our students would want an online program. Um, so how would we possibly pull this off? And so after agreeing that we were not ready to move forward on that, I thought about it for a while and I thought, well, maybe there's a way that we can actually bring online students into our face-to-face -face program so that we could essentially offer an online program to students, at least a lot of online experiences, maybe not every class, 
um, so that we could, you know, increase, in, increase our enrollment with, a, with those students. We weren't talking hundreds of students we needed. We would like to serve five or 10 more students in the program or in our courses, a relatively small amount. And so uh, I got permission, um, essentially I was going to do it anyway, but I did get permission from my department chair uh, to experiment with one of my classes that semester. And so that semester, which had already been uh, going on, I decided to start giving students the option of um, you can be here in person like you always are, most of you are, 90% of you are here. Uh, but if you can't be here or don't wanna be here, here's an online option for you. And so we were already using the learning management system. All, most of the materials were already digital. So I did some work to create more digital content for them. I added an online discussion. I, I decided, well, how do I capture the discussion from the classroom? I did a simple little MP3 recording for them. And so the online experience for them was certainly not a certifiable online course experience, but it was it was better than not having anything, and it was adequate to support their achievement of learning outcomes. And so um, that's where we kind of started with. We needed to be able to support online students, but we did not want to give up a face-to-face -face program because that's where we were. Now, by the, by the time we got to the next year, uh, I started teaching more of my classes that way. Can you just say what those students who are online were doing? What was their choice to be online? Or do they have to be online? Just for a bit right. of context. Yes, for the, the students who were online, I mean, they were making choices based on, you know, like every student would on their personal, their schedule, right? Their, their travel schedule, their family schedule, commuting, et cetera. When they were online, we were all using the same set of content resources. So the content was the same. They were all doing the same assignments in the class. So the papers they were writing, the presentations they were doing, the quizzes they may have been taking, all the same, all done online for all students, right? So I, that was not anything different, really. What was really different was they weren't in the classroom for the conversations we had in class. So I thought, well, that's probably, that's a real rich part of the course. I don't want them to, you know, to, to be okay. They would reach learning outcomes anyway, but I wanted them to have that experience. And so I tried to capture that as best I could. We did not have good video capture at that time. We did not have good synchronous uh, online connection at the time. We didn't have a platform we could trust. And so um, the, the audio was what I came up with as my, my first solution. And I would ask the students who were doing it online and they would tell me, I actually listened to that audio, I, but I listened to it on my iPod while I'm doing my life, while I'm, while I'm walking, while I'm running, while I'm doing the dishes. So that showed me that it, that was of some value to some of the students, but I also wanted them to have their own discussion a more application-focused discussion. And so that's where we came in with the online discussion. In the early days, that was just for the online uh, participants, the asynchronous online participants. We didn't have synchronous participants online at the, in those days. I've, I've changed that practice. We can talk a little bit about that later. Um, but we really had, I was trying to keep it from being two separate classes, right? So HyFlex does not work if you treat every, every mode as a separate class. It's got to be a single kind of class, kind of single course, learning together with multiple participation paths. So that's where we were, and that's what the experience was for them. Um, what I, what, when we started doing some research around the two to see what were the patterns, what was the experience of students, and were they, were they actually showing us they were, they were learning as well as anyone in the class was. So what point did it stop being uh, asynchronous in that, in yeah, that period, a, Brian? Right. I would say that uh, in the after we've been doing this for two or three years, we finally started using a platform called Illuminate, uh, which eventually was bought by Blackboard, became Blackboard yeah. Collaborate. And we started right. using that in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, we were our, our institution. I mean, that 
who did not want to pay for that across the board because no one was going to use it except for a handful of people. <laughs> so we had a we had a relationship with a vendor and we had like early access to it. So we were able to use it kind of on a trial basis in our in our courses. And so that worked reasonably well. Um, we had some technical problems. We struggled mm -hmm. with audio in the classroom uh, for a while. Uh, the, capturing the audio of the students who were talking in the classroom for the students who were joining online or who were listening to the recording later was was challenging. And part of it was because we didn't work really closely with our academic technology mm -hmm. uh, or IT folks who were doing that. And so they would come up with a solution, technically a great solution. Faculty couldn't use it. Too many buttons, yeah. switches, yeah. or they gave, yeah. them, they, they yeah. gave them the yeah. access to a mixer which nobody knew how to make. <laughs> so you, yeah, you need to be a production that. engineer. To, yes, to... exactly. Uh, and that's when it's, we, we fixed that problem. The online experience became more consistent and better. Um, and then as that kind of moved into Collaborate, eventually the campus went to Zoom uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, and so we started using that and that platform has worked really well for us. So uh, really interesting to hear the uh, the experimental side of this as well and that, that sort of chimes i think with mine and ivan's experience of, of of doing what you said in some ways you didn't you didn't do but in other ways you've been able to do many well. had a mixer <laughs> i did have a mixer but i controlled it as well that's right yeah. <laughs> it's a very small one yeah. um so mm -hmm. i was just wa just wondering there i mean did, did you do this alone or with other faculty or uh you know, how did you work together with your colleagues on that yeah thank you that's a really good question continuing the story then uh, after after finding some initial success, uh, experimenting in a couple of sections of uh, or a couple of classes in one year, the next semester I thought, well, I'm I'm going to teach this in all my classes. I think there's a lot of promise here. Then then I went to the dean of the college because I, I needed some time, and so I said I'd, I'd like to do this innovative approach. I'd like you to support it by basically giving me some time. So they gave me a what we call a course release. So I taught one last course, and so I had that a little extra time to develop these courses a little bit more substantially for the online component, essentially, uh, as well as to do some initial kind of data, data gathering. Because I knew I also had to write about this. I at least had to present about it at a conference. Junior professor, you've got to have that 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 stream of uh, you know publication going. And so that's when uh, the term high flex became uh, it started existing because I I I considered a hybrid approach. Right, we're mixing online and face to face, but the students were given the flexibility. I couldn't tell who needed to be in person or online every every week. You know, their schedules changed just like mine did. And if they had, I could give them the flexibility. Why would I not? As long as they were continuing to learn. So I just put those words together: a little portmanteau of uh, hybrid and flexible. We have high flex, uh, and that that I don't know if the reviewers of my first conference proposal noticed that, uh, but it was accepted, and and then that was the beginning of the story. Uh, that was back in 2006, I believe. My other colleagues, they kind of looked at me a little strangely. Say, uh, hmm, I don't know. I don't teach online. Do I? Should I really be doing this? Part of the challenge with HiveFlex is some of the real values you get at a program level or for the students overall only happen when students have a, have a, have a number of flexible courses to choose from, not just one or not mm -hmm. just taught by one professor. Right. That helps them for those classes. But if it's a program challenge to get through a program or I am I'm working, uh, you know, half remote or, you know, around the world half time this year, they need flexibility in, in, the, in a whole program, really. So we started doing that. And so after a couple of years, uh, no one was ever forced to do this. Uh, and we, we actually started some of them were making the option. They would they would consider high flex, maybe try it and decide, you know what, if we have to keep if we have to support online students, I get that. 
I'm going to going to teach an online class. I'm not I'm not going to do the I don't see a need for being in person with them. Some of the faculty didn't really, you know, not every faculty is uh, well suited for that classroom environment where it's an invigorating and energizing process like I feel like it is for me. And so some of them said, well, I'm just going to go online. And that was an interesting path we started seeing. Uh, uh, in, I think, 2007 or eight, I started talking about HyFlex as potentially a bridge to online. Because essentially, that's where we started. We wanted to be able to serve online students starting with a face-to-face -face program. How do we get there? Well, let's build a bridge. You know, let's let's serve both. You know, we're connected to both ends. I decided basically to, to live on that bridge, to stay on the bridge. Uh, I didn't want to move all the way over to fully online because I liked teaching in the classroom and I saw it valuable for many of my students. Some of my colleagues crossed the bridge. Some of the coll my colleagues also crossed the bridge and then went back to the other side. So hmm. I got, you know, hmm, done this online thing for a year or two. I don't think this is really helping me as a teacher. I'm not happy with it. Uh, so I'm going back to the classroom teaching. So it's been an interesting, especially those early years, nothing was mandated. It was all pretty much experimental. There was a lot of variation in what people were doing. Uh, and then as we started kind of seeing it mature a little bit, that's when we started hitting some of the some of the policies, some of the practices that more of the yeah. institution. Well, that's another that's another story. Well, so that's another, the challenges, James. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so just coming in on that, Brian, I think that's quite a good, uh, appropriate point to ask about the challenges you faced in this. Um, and obviously, it was quite experimental, and your faculty gave you that latitude and uh, gave you that scope to build this bridge. But what what are the sort of main challenges you found? Were they mainly behavioural or political or technical? Or what would you say were the biggest? I would say that, you know, the challenges are across the board, teaching something brand new where no one knows what you're doing or why it has to be explained all the time. You kind of have to get, you know, you need your 30 second pitch. Right? Okay. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing uh, as well as a follow on to explain the rationale, why this is important. I, I learned pretty, pretty quickly that uh, to talk to other people about this, uh, in in order for them to kind of take on the challenge of even considering trying this, there has to be a pretty compelling why. They have to there something yeah. has to be driving them towards this. If it's not, then why would they do something different, right? Change change takes effort, no matter really what it sure. is. And so it's going to take you some effort. There are, there are obviously technical challenges, like as said I said earlier, we had technical challenges primarily with audio in the room, but also not having the video and the synchronous capability. Over time, those those were basically solved, but that was a, you know, that was had to be a kind of a patient process. So we what we do what we did is we learned how to work with the minimal technology we had. I've taught several courses just with my laptop because my installed technology in the classroom didn't work for some reason, or I was in a room I did not expect to be in. I carry around now a portable a portable camera and a portable uh, you know conference mic that captures enough for probably fifteen or twenty people, because I've learned that sometimes our plans that we have in place don't mm. work out. So I need yeah. a plan B or a plan C. Um, and so, but I have gotten, since I grew up that way in, in academia, doing a lot of the things myself, yeah. I'm okay with it. I'm comfortable. Yeah. With it. yeah. I talk to a lot of faculty now at colleges that are, that are rolling out high flux or considering it. And that asked that, that would just completely stop them cold. Some of them. Yeah. It's like, what? I can't just come in and, you know, I need someone to push those buttons for me. You know, yeah. how can I have that happen? I, I'm not doing that. I don't, or they can't do the troubleshooting when. It needs to be a uh, bit self-sufficient. <laughs> I can't hear my students or, or whatever, uh, you know, so those are some of the challenges, technical side. So we fixed a lot of those on our campus. Uh, but now the challenge technically actually rolling out is when student, when they're trying to do this at scale is how many rooms do we have? What can sure. we actually do? So we have these other kind of challenges, but there are also, Probably the biggest challenge on the faculty side is cultural. 
yeah. uh, or cultural or, or you know, kind of socio-emotional, essentially. Because when yeah. you're talking about giving students flexibility about where they're going to participate, okay, what does that mean about the classroom? Yeah. Well, you're not going to have a full classroom anymore, no. right? That The choice is not to be in the classroom, to do something else. And so some faculty have a real trouble with not having all the students there. Or what happens when you get below whatever your critical number would be? Let's say you teach a course of 30 students. What would it feel like to teach 15? Probably pretty good. What yeah. if it, you were teaching five? Eh, I don't know. I'm a little worried now. What if it was one or two? How would you teach that? You know, so, so this is the process that faculty have to kind of go through because their students will gravitate towards online. It depends a lot on the course, what's going on, where, what level they're at, how engaged are they, how connected are they to the faculty, to the mm -hmm. other students. Some classes stay relatively full in the classroom. Some don't. And so a faculty has to be willing to say, okay, the majority of my students are online. I have to believe that they have a, a solid instructional path to follow. I've designed it or someone has helped me design it. And I have to believe in that. And I have to let them know that I value them just as much as I do the students who are in the classroom where I really want to be. That's a real challenge for some faculty. And I think I, even for me, I have to, I've had to kind of grow cool. into that. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's obviously expectation setting, but there's almost a psychological squaring to be done by faculty that right. if if there are 15 people in the room, great, five people, not so great. Well, actually, that might not be a problem for the students. It might be That's a problem right. for just, the academic. Yeah, you, and you'd have to kind of think of, think of the classroom design then a little differently. Our my activities might be the same, but they're going to they're going to yeah. be carried out differently. I still yeah. might do breakout discussions, but now I maybe have one break out in the class and that's that should be okay right now everyone else is doing breakouts online not a problem uh but you have to kind of get through that process at least once the faculty inherently learner centered isn't it, it you know, well inherently yes and i would tell faculty also who are concerned about this look with students choosing oh what they're just going to make all their choices about how they're learning so well no you're giving them a choice among paths but you yeah. have laid yeah. out the path in each of those areas. If yeah. you've done your job designing well in all those paths, it shouldn't matter, you know, which path they're choosing. They still should be able to learn. Oh, and by the way, here's another challenge for faculty. You got to be there, right? Mm -hmm. The students choosing an asynchronous path, you got to be there too, just like you're teaching a fully asynchronous engaging class because exactly. you are for those students. That's the path they're choosing. So now this is the other challenge of faculty. Mm -hmm. One of the big challenges for faculty is, you have to think about the work you're doing throughout the week, your academic week, differently. You, you right. still are going to be meeting with some students in class, most likely, unless they all move online, which is a different challenge. Um, but now you're also meeting with those online students in a facilitating pattern like you would in any online class. And so how do you manage that? So I talk a lot about a little bit about workload, um, um, but really more about workflow. It's like I don't I don't have a, I don't have more time in my working calendar throughout the week. So if I have to spend some time facilitating online that I normally wouldn't do, where is that time going to come from? Hmm. One of the one of the reasons one of my recent uh, evolutions of HyFlex for me is that I, I take some of the, the uh, in-person contact hours for my students and I cut that down a little bit. And I give them that time for their off because I want all my students participating in the online forums. And so I give them some time back from the classroom. And I let them know, hey, you can sit here for the next 45 minutes, which is our scheduled three hours for the week, and do your online forums now, or you can just do it anytime throughout the week, which is what they all do. But then I have that 45 minutes of time or whatever I've shaved off to be part of the online online forums, which, which encompasses most of the time I would spend in forums for a particular class for one particular week. 
that's a contact hour kind of discussion to have on at a campus. So I've had that conversation mm. with our administration here, and it meets all our policy uh, uh, requirements. Uh, and so um, it actually has been working out really well. What it does, it makes the entire class at least some hybrid because there's no only in the classroom path anymore, really. In in in, a, in, in I had to think about that a little bit. Am I being mm. Am I not giving them what I'm selling them as far as, okay, you can be a fully online student or fully face-to-face student, et cetera. And I realized that there are almost no fully face-to-face courses anymore, anywhere, unless it's maybe super hands-on, but there's still out-of-class things to do. So now I count that as out-of-class contact hours, right? So not in class, but it's out-of-class and you get a little bit of time flexibility back. Great. Uh, Yeah, I'm listening to you, Brian, and actually I'm trying just to to capture all these ideas to to implement on my side, Uh, (laughs) because it's obviously that you have been thinking of that, about that very much. Um, Being on the other side of the lectern, like yourself as well, but not being a creator of, of the system like you have been, I'm just wondering, we are all different and basically also with the time that has passed since you started, probably another generation grew up or maybe a few generations grew up in terms of uh, academics who are taking part into this type of instructions. So I'm just wondering what what would be the, the guidance or maybe is there any particular uh, guidance that you can share uh, uh, with, uh, with, with those who are really completely new to the hybrid? So basically yeah. what would be the the I would say like a safeguarding guidance. In aviation, we have, we call that envelopes. And I'm from aviation, usually I put these analogies. So basically we know where the center of gravity might move. If it moves out of that envelope, it might be dangerous. So what would be the envelope that you would maybe tell people who are completely new to the high hybrid to obey or to observe, not to fall into the spin or stall? Okay, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it. I think that um, there's there's probably two classes of the faculty who are considering or moving into high flex. And that one is those who are being forced to do so because an institution's made made that decision, or maybe they're looking, they're trying to get hired or they've been recently hired in in a program that's already being taught high flex. They really don't have a choice then. Mm -hmm. So they're gonna have to learn one way or the other. But but I wanna talk more about the case where a faculty, it does have some agency in this choice where I I might, eventually I might see the writing on the wall that we're gonna be teaching this way, but I don't have to do it right now. So how do I kind of get myself going towards that? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing to do is to uh, learn more about what online education really means. What does it mean to teach online? And most of our institutions have some professional development opportunity for faculty mm-hmm. where they can learn what it is like to teach online or to teach hybrid. Now, so, so we, many of us have taught face-to-face. Many of us have taught synchronous online. Not as many have taught fully online, uh, fully online asynchronously. And I think it, it, it certainly is good if you can to prepare to at least understand what, what that means and get mm-hmm. some sense of, well, what does it take from me? What are the activities? What are the tools I need to be able to use? And what is my time and my cadence like in order to participate uh, and, and be the facilitator for those kinds of things. And so then the, the next thing I say, so get yourself educated. This is an mm-hmm. important part. Any successful high flex implementation I'm aware of has had faculty development as a key part of it. The second part is really trying it out on a small scale, right? Like any kind of change that you're adopting, if you can try it on a small scale and see some value, you're more likely to continue with the change. Mm-hmm. And if you can try something out without fully committing to it, like this is why I started with like one or two sections or classes that first mm-hmm. semester. 
I didn't know if it was going to work. So I wasn't going to just tell the class, okay, from now on, we're going to be, you know, you can have multiple modes here. No, it's like, okay, this week you can be online and here's what it would be like to be an online student. And so I wanted them to try it out. Well, if a faculty in person can do that with their courses, try it out uh, mm -hmm. and see how it works. And, and we're maybe working with a team or a cohort or others who have done this before, ideally, like some mm -hmm. learning community ideas, then you're more likely to be able to find success because you'll try something out and some of it will work really well. And some of them may not work at all. And some of it will just be, well, I'm not sure if I like that. I got to try that again. Mm -hmm. And then and schedule that. So if you have some time that first semester, right after you've gotten some some uh, some idea of what you're getting getting into, you've seen mm -hmm. some examples, try it out. And then make, then you can start making decisions about, okay, do I want to do this and commit to it? Because once you start committing to it, now students can register for it. Now you might mm -hmm. get students who intend to be fully online as well as those who intend to be fully face-to-face. When I was just experimenting, and actually the first couple of terms, my students didn't even mm -hmm. know what Hyflex was until they took a course from me, but they would all sign up and it was all scheduled as a fully face-to-face -face course. Mm -hmm. And so for them, when they came to the first classroom and they heard from me, I can do this online. Some of them are like, whoa, excellent. I'll see mm -hmm. you, right? <laughs> and they were just online students and maybe they'd come back uh, later or they'd come back mm -hmm. for like the final presentations and stuff like that, the parties. Hmm. But, I love this. Yeah, I love that small scale uh, yeah. taster. Yeah, taster approach. Because I, have, I, have, I can tell you also, teaching in the pandemics with us at the University of West London, we we had to move online, and then coming back to the classroom where actually it was really hybrid. It was interesting to see that that people opted just like you said. Some weeks they've been on, some weeks they've been off, and basically that was the combination of their of their engagement. Yeah. Yeah, great. yeah, Thank yeah, yeah. It just, I found the students, um, they find their own cadence, their own their own pattern. And I found usually most of my classes within two weeks, I could tell how many students were going to be in each each mode for the mm -hmm. most for most of the semester. Not exactly every person. I still had roughly 10 or 15 percent of the students were changing from week to week, Fine. but it was always about the same number of students. So that was pretty, very consistent. I will say that, uh, and this is something that we've observed in lots of classes, but students tended to be a little less engaged throughout the term. I think in all classes, they're pretty mm -hmm. much that way. How does yeah. that show up in high flex? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. for some students, what that means is I'm going to, if I feel less engaged, it's less of a commitment for me to just do it asynchronously online or just join a Zoom call for mm -hmm. class rather than traveling to campus, you know, paying my 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 bus fare or whatever, yeah. the metro, or parking right because that's for even if you live close that's that's at least 35 or 40 minutes it is, right yeah. and where i live where we we're all commuters and i i commute quite a bit some of our students would spend three hours commuting and pay yeah. essentially mm -hmm. like 20 dollars or so US dollars in gas and tolls just to get there so yeah. over the semester at the end of the semester sometimes if we found that we had a little drop off in the classroom of course unless we plan the classroom activity for something they really wanted to be part of. Like, how about a, how about a couple of review sessions before mm -hmm. the final exam or, uh, you know, paper reviews or other kinds of things, more social events. We started mm -hmm. doing more social events in class yeah. uh, to help attract them back. Not, not because we didn't think they could learn online. We had to believe that was a good path for them, mm -hmm. but we felt like it was still going to be more socially valuable for them uh, to have as many as we could in the classroom. Right? Is, that, is that about relationship building as well, Brian? Definitely. And, uh, and this is most of the, my teachings in the graduate program, um, like I said, and those are the situations where we want them to be together if we can, because we know how, how much pow more powerful that networking is face to face. Mm. E even though we can network online, we've got LinkedIn and other tools like Indeed, that. Yeah. It's, it's not the same. This is also another important thing about HyFlex. When we talk about equivalent learning in these different paths, mm -hmm. 
I'm telling faculty now, look, don't, you can't promise equal experiences. They are not equal experiences. Mm -hmm. Students can reach the same learning outcomes. We should be having the same yeah. learning outcomes, but that doesn't mean it's an equal experience. Learning online asynchronously is very different than learning in the classroom or going through that instructional you know, event in the classroom. And we have, yeah. to, we have to kind of keep that on the table. That's <laughs> almost as if uh, you, you planned a perfect segue to our next question <laughs> uh, there, Brian. Um, I, I really like the, uh, the idea of students actually having the agency to make their own decisions where typically they might sometimes feel like they're dropping out if they uh, move online or something and they'd be worried about what the faculty would say about that. Uh, and, and that mean they might not come back, but in what you've just described, they might dip in and out. And therefore it's, you know, as the, 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 as the academic, as the faculty, you're curating a community in order to give them, incentivize them to um, see a reason for coming back in person or something like that. See, seeing a reason to come back or at least to stay engaged. Mm -hmm. yeah. To recognize themselves, if I'm going to be an asynchronous student, I have to be more intentional with my engagement myself. It's not going to happen just like if I'm showing up at, you know, seven o'clock at night, <clears throat> spending two hours with these people in class, I'm going to be engaged because they're there in front of me. If I'm going to do it online. I have to actually plan that engagement mm. and, 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 and read, you know, do the engagement myself, typically through words on a screen. I just wanted to come in there because, Brian, you, you just said something that chimed with one of our very first guests, which was Professor Peter Jameson from, he uh, used to work at Melbourne University, heavily involved in learning spaces. And he, one of his key statements, questions to ask ourselves was, why are students going to come back? We need to give students a reason to come on campus. We need to mm. give them a re reason to come back to learn. And whether you think that's just straight engagement or um, whatever it is, I think that's a really important point just to touch base with. So you mentioned equity of experience there, Brian, and uh, you, you made the point that these are actually fundamentally different experiences and they have uh, they all have different affordances, different, you know, each modality works in different ways as well. Um, and, and yet what um, I think probably all of us around the table today are striving to do for our students is to help them to get some kind of equivalence in achieving their learning outcomes at the very least. So in, how, how do you tackle uh, issues around equity, accessibility for your students? What, what kind of angle do you come from in, in trying to give them some sort of equivalence? Uh, that's a really good question. That's really important for us to kind of wrestle with. I mean, we clearly there are the um, the basic issues of ex accessibility that we are required to do because of our federal laws, our state laws, our local policies and practices around making sure the content and the tools we're using for engagement are accessible to everyone uh, with a, a range of ability levels, uh, physical abilities, mental abilities, et cetera. So let's just let's just put that on the table is that we know we have to do that no matter how we're teaching. Right. Um, it's more important if you're doing multiple modes, because now you have to address it in multiple modes, not just the single you know, participation path or mode instruction. But as far as the rest, one of the things that I have seen happening in my own teaching, and I, I noticed this a while ago, is that more and more of my class experience is becoming the same for everyone because I'm finding ways to basically, I, I, there's this principle that I like to um, a value of reusing things or reuse. 
It helps me manage my own workload, but it also helps create this community when students are doing the same kinds of activities or the same activities, no matter which participation path they're in. And so that's why all, all of the content that I provide for students, I give it all to them through the online, the learning management system. So they're all getting it consistently. They have access to exactly the same content. Now, if I had special content that's only physically available in the classroom, I wouldn't keep that away from students. I would explain to online students, look, this is just, I can't get this to you. Like this is a piece of equipment, or maybe these are some samples of something we're going to look at in class. You know, here's some pictures of them, not the same as being here, but that's all we can do. It's not going to stop you from reaching the learning outcomes if you don't get that. So content, right? Assessment strategies. A long time ago, I went away from any kind of, you know, major exams. I did some quizzes to help people learn, or, you know, get them to do the reading before the class. Um, but all of those were done online. So the experience for students was the same, taking those weekly quizzes, like the readings quizzes. When I have students do assignments, we do, you know, these authentic assignments, which in my field, our field, really, it's writing, doing, doing, you know, designing projects and things like that, and then talking mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. They all do it out of class, and they report it. They might report it in class or report it online, but essentially, they're doing the same work. They're saying doing the same assessments. So it doesn't matter which path they're in. The experience for them is largely the same. Uh, engagement. Engagement is probably the place where there's really the difference. The classroom engagement has the social engagement, the physical engagement, like we would in a classroom. We don't keep, we don't, tr we don't put that down because not everyone else is going to get it. What we do is we try to capture elements of that, the conversations, because we're generating more content. And then we give that to the online learners, the asynchronous learners in particular, who are not live listening into it, so they can at least listen to that. Listening to an hour and a half or a two-hour recording of a class, you know, unless there's a good reason to do so, and it's, it's uh, you know, I know that I'm invited and I'm expected and there's a reason for me to be doing this, it's really hard for students. So mm. what we do with transcripts now with our, our recordings is let them know, look, if you don't want to watch the video, at least read through the transcript, you'll decide whether there's any of that video you need to watch, or you can get basically most of the information you're going to get is going to be through the through the words that we're using. Mm -hmm. I've also started teaching differently that live section. So the inter, so we're doing more uh, interaction in class with the synchronous students as well through tools like like Mentimeter or Poll Everywhere or even Zoom polling. I use Mentimeter mostly now because I just love the interactivity. Um, and then I make that also available. I design it so it's also going to be useful for asynchronous students. So the interaction that we have during nice. the interactive presentation in class. Mm -hmm. Uh, the online students, the asynchronous students, get more of that than they would have before. There, I also put things in there that require them to actually add to those polling slides asynchronously throughout the week afterwards, mm -hmm. if they want kind of credit for being part of the, you know, attending class online. It includes interacting with us in that interactive element, even though we've already done it. You're going to leave your trail, and so at, at the end of the week, you know, your voice is part of ours when we get the chance to see the results. So those are some things that were. We still have some differences, but we're trying to, I've been trying to kind of bring them together as much as possible. And then, of course, the online discussions, which I think are real important. They're not the same as the in-class discussions. In-class discussions are typically focused on uh, more basic facts, concepts, basic ideas, explanations. Online mm -hmm. discussions are focused more on ap application problems. Here's the situation. How would you apply these principles we're talking about in this situation? I have everybody doing that, not just the online asynchronous students, but mm -hmm. also the face-to-face -face students. I mentioned that how to manage the time. But the reason why I do that is twofold. One, I want the application uh, uh, discussion for everybody. And I don't have time to do that in the, in the classroom. It just doesn't, it doesn't usually work out that way because we have to go through the basic stuff because they're mm. maybe not ready for the application piece. But exactly. secondly, 
it also creates everybody doing the same activity every week um, in that kind of online forum. So it, it generates more community. So what I so I guess the the that's a very long answer to your question. I find that what I'm what I'm ending up doing is doing more consistently things for uh, in the most limiting engagement space which is online and having everybody join that so that so that the experience is more equivalent in the classroom we still have the face-to-face -face engagement and it is more i think it's more engagement because of the social characteristics of the classroom environment um and then students are making that choice some of them love that some of them mm -hmm. hate that they would much be rather be online asynchronously um you know for a variety of reasons but i want to give them these options because that choice is not going to dictate the, their ability to reach the learning outcomes. Mm. Right. It might be a, yeah. a, a long answer there, Brian, but it's a whole toolkit of strategies in response to that, yeah. one, which is fantastic. Ivan, <laughs> uh, let me hand over to you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, thank you, thank you, Brian. And actually, again, I'm making notes, so hopefully it's going to be useful for me as well. Um, we are in the transition. So basically, I don't know how about the other side of the, of the ocean here, we walk around uh, without masks. Uh, it's interesting to see people shaking hands again. So uh, it seems that post-pandemic is with us, yeah? Uh, still, uh, we are aware that uh, the, the type of, of uh, instructions and type of education we are just talking about today has helped us go through this time, yeah? So now there is probably a, a worry or maybe a question, or maybe there is not if you have a, a crystal crystal ball, uh, whether the uh, this type of education uh, is going to stay with us for next 10 to 15 years? Is it going to, to be more, more pronounced or less pronounced towards the, the future? So what would you think? What, what do you think? How is going to be the shape and the look of the university maybe in 10 to 15 years? Hopefully, okay. we'll, we'll have time to catch up then about your answer. But for now, just try to just try to, to give us some idea. Forecast time. Yes, yes, yes exactly. Uh, well, I, I will tell you that I, I'm, I'm always amazed at the the, you know, the we all we get to live in the times that we're we're put into. Right. You know, we didn't choose this time, you know, but here we are. And so we have an opportunity. We've had an opportunity really the last year to help kind of, you know, get through a pandemic. And then, and then, and then now we're on the other side for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and so, well, we still have some long tail issues of pandemic, of uh, you know, in my area in particular, we, we just got out of masks a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. from being mandated in classroom. So it's still kind of that thing hanging over us. Yeah, and yet we're also looking at, you know, what are we going to do in the future? Um, interestingly enough, many of the, especially public institutions in, in, um, in, in the U S are concerned because we're we're down enrollment five, 10, 20% even in some areas. And we're wondering how do we get those students back? Because you know it it has it has consequences for budgets and all sorts of things. Um, and so there's a there's this been this push to come back to campus, get our students back to campus. On our on our class our campus, we have quotas that every department has to meet is how many classes are scheduled only face to face. No hybrid, no online, only face-to-face. -face. And I think it's 75% this coming term. And so we're meeting that. And yet what we're finding from our students is their, their actions, when, they, when they're given the choice to be flexible, more of them are choosing online than ever before. Uh, and there's been some national, and here's some national studies that just came out. The Gates Foundation just did one uh, at the end of uh, September, it was released. 
And it was asking students who had graduated from our high school. So they were eligible for college, but either had chosen during the pandemic not to go to college, or they started at a two-year or four-year school and stopped out. And they said, well, what are the things that would help bring you back? And uh, they had a whole list of maybe 15 things, but a couple of them had to do with course modality. And when they asked, you know, uh, the, the statement was, uh, I have the opportunity to, uh, you know, um, to I flexibly scheduled courses so that I can, you know, basically fit them into my life or fit my life around them or whatever it was. 76% said, yeah, that would help bring me back. When they asked the question, all my classes in person on campus, only 44% of them said that was avail uh, something that would attract them back. Yet this is the population we're trying to attract back. And yet much, many of our schools, uh, the, the leadership, uh, there are a lot of factors going on clearly, but the pushes come back to campus. Uh, it, when the students are saying, uh, I don't know, not yet, maybe not ever, but I'll be part of your program if you give me some flexibility. So uh, on our campus, uh, and then we, we do these surveys with our own students. You know, how do you want to learn? And, and we have survey results that say the majority want to be in person. Then we offer the in-person classes next to an asynchronous class section. And guess what fills up first? Asynchronous all the time, much more quickly. So they're We've got this. We've got this thing going on in our in mm. our program. This is all kind of recovering from the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, we had about fifteen percent of our enrollment was full in fully online courses. Uh, right now, we still have twenty-five to thirty percent fully online. But the um, the campus is trying to bring them back. Why do we want to bring them back on campus? Because it was a desert here for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Not just because of no water. No, I mean, that's a California problem. Trying but to justify yeah, our there states, was no right? one here. Right. And people yeah, buying yeah. things, vendors, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the dorms, the housing we built yeah. weren't always full. I think I think also also it's actually sorry to interrupt, but I think it's uh, that that young people energy that is in the classroom, in the in the corridors actually is something that is nice. Yeah. And probably all of us we thrive on this, enjoy being around people that are keen and eager to learn right. to to contribute. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's really interesting is that the, we've got the same experience uh, at, our, at our institute at city university of london the the right. students say they want to be back on campus right but do they want to sit in traditional lectures no yeah. no <laughs> well, I, I i when i was a student on i liked being around campus but it, and it was part of it was for classes but it wasn't really about the classes it was mm -hmm. the people Right. Yeah. And the things that we could do even outside class, before class, after class, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I think I think the long term solution and this is where a, a, a university that gets this right. Some of them are probably getting it right already where you're bringing back students who want to be back, but making that environment of the campus more energizing and engaging. Exactly. Even exactly. if they're not there for classes. Yes. So the, so the social and the community of the campus and the institution is kind of recovered and strong. Mm -hmm but still giving them flexibility for how they're learning spaces on campus yeah. so that uh, students can be online students in a class happening on campus at that moment. And they're on campus, but they're not in the class. Yeah. They're like in a library in a study yeah. room or exactly. somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So they still get flexibility and they're on campus because they want to be there and, and yeah. to recognize that it's not all, you know, basically cram everybody back in the classroom. Mm -hmm. yeah. That yeah. is not going to work. We're going to, we're not going to recover those students. No. Mm -hmm. And, and so I these think are some of the you're absolutely great. right. Thank that, you. yeah. that, that I think it's a lesson for universities and university managers to learn from students behavior about what they want, not yeah. necessarily what we think they are saying they want in surveys. That's right. Even, even before the pandemic, we've had students who lived on campus uh, who paid, paid for their room and board and yet took all their classes online. And uh, we had no policy against that. So they figured out, I don't have to actually 
Get out of my dorm if I don't want to. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Exactly. Some exactly. of them were choosing to do that, which is interesting behavior. You got um, the campus being line. used, being paid. Yes. For. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ten years from now, though, what are we looking at? I don't think mm-hmm. the Hyflex doesn't go away. Hyflex was here before mm-hmm. the pandemic. Yes, it yeah. lives beyond the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, last summer in uh, the Gartner, you may be familiar with Gartner reports, the hype cycle in higher education, top mm-hmm. of the top of the hype cycle, you know, basically flexible learning. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things. So, you know, the next stage for that cycle is okay, down the trough of into the trough of disillusionment and then coming back on the other side for some new steady state adding value. I mm-hmm. think that's certainly the traveling path for high flex. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been pushback uh, uh, in some places now because they rushed into it. They didn't do it well. Faculty weren't mm-hmm. prepared. They don't have infrastructure um, and uh, there's no long term vision for it. And it's mm-hmm. not going it's gonna get them through the pandemic. They'll probably come back to something like this if we have another situation like this or other local regional things. Mm. But in the long term, the schools that are going to find value are ones that are realizing better serving the students we have, but also reaching out to serve students we don't have yet. Exactly. That we want yeah. To have. Yeah. Right. There are a lot of students and even in our metro area that are not engaged in higher education who could be. Uh, mm-hmm. who want to be, but they just haven't found the, yeah. the ability to do so. And the competition mm-hmm. among schools, especially at that level, is going to be mm-hmm. fierce. Yeah. Because if I offer these flexible courses, I can attract population from your area. Yeah, yeah. Public schools that have like assigned areas, but I can of get course. students to the area if they so want to re- come here. redrawing the maps, isn't it? Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, I, I, and I think there's a consensus from other guests we've had on teaching here and there when we put a similar question to them. You know whether it's high flex, dual delivery, synchronous, right. multimodal, whatever they call it, everyone's saying something very similar. And you talked about this curve, and I think that from our experience, just within city, uh, mirrored elsewhere, is this idea that it it will it won't go away, and it will right. formalize in specific areas that suit certain courses, certain demographics, probably more graduate. Courses. It's easier to do. I think it's easier to do at the graduate level because you, you can found assume that, that you? Yeah. are more responsible in managing their own learning. Not a good assumption all the time, but in general, I'd say. Yeah. Um, uh, what I, what I would I wouldn't want us to keep this away from students who really need the flexibility just because we don't think they can manage it themselves. Yeah. Because uh, when we start making decisions like that, now all of a sudden we're cutting people out of access uh, who who could do just well. All right, uh, because of some assumptions about about that. So, the, so that's that's part of the challenges. You don't want to give this. You don't want to use this when you know that students are are. Um, it's going to disserve them in some particular way. It's like offering asynchronous online courses to a student population that you know eighty percent of them are probably going to drop out. Why would you do that mm. for those twenty percent? Mm-hmm. That's not typically how we yeah. would do that. So kind of yeah, hashtag yeah. listen to your students, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it, yeah. So I think you know, good design, good facilitation, a different role. The faculty have to think of themselves teaching differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, someone said uh, in in um, some population like a year or so ago, it's a different genre, right? It's yeah. it teaching yeah. this way is different than teaching any other single mode way. Yeah, it requires different things from you, and these are skills that you can be that can be learned, but it also requires kind of a mindset, a paradigm towards instruction that says, hey. Who, whose job is it to meet the students where they're at? It's mine, right? If they're if they're if this is the way they're able to come here, and if I know how I can help teach them that way, then that's part of my my part of my responsibility uh, to do that. Highflex is going to be just one of you know it's just it's just basically taking its place. It may grow. Some institutions will do this much more broadly. Some institutions won't, especially if they're they're the kind of institutions students will always come to anyway. Mm. You're going to come to our institution. You're going to live here. 
because this is what you do when you come here. And it's part of the whole deal you're getting mm -hmm. here. Uh, and then, and if you're already here, then we're probably less likely to provide you with online options because we want, we're going to have you in the halls, right? Have you in those rooms, but, but that's not the majority of the institutions I'd say. Brian, I, I think there's uh, an awful lot more we could cover, but uh, we don't want to keep you away from teaching your students. <laughs> um, before we, before we let you go, um, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you, you feel is important to mention here to this audience? Well, I would say that, um, I do think that you know having a, having a strong reason why this is important for your students is important to add, to talk to students and actually get students involved when you know an institution's thinking of doing this even a department or a program bring your students in and have them part of the envisioning process as well as maybe even the designing process mm -hmm. and then once you're rolling this out always ask students how is it going would you rec you know what's working well for you what's not mm -hmm. working well and being being um you know, open to changing what you're doing if it's not working for students based on the data that you've been gathering. Uh, I think that's where we are in the long run. And, and uh, you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, my version of HyperLex now is probably 4.0 in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to get to it from 1.0, 2.0, 2.8, you know, all those kinds of things along the way. You're not going to start out teaching HyperLex like a pro, right? Because it, it just doesn't work that way. You have to learn how to do it for yourself. So, um, yeah, be patience you know some vision for uh, serving students better talk to people around you right be prepared to teach iteratively right exactly right yeah it's it's more of an agile kind of teaching mentality than mm -hmm. design the whole thing up front then teach it exactly how you design that doesn't work probably yeah. it, it it doesn't work in you know especially when you're moving multiple ways but so first gotta, of all you start off with a paper dart then you sit in a simulator and then you can take that plane up is that right Ivan? <laughs> yeah almost there <laughs> Something along those lines. well that's, so brian that's, it's been yeah uh, it's fantastic thank you yeah thank you it's been an absolute delight to have you along on the journey today i'm sure uh like me many of our listeners will be you know, looking forward to a transcript and getting a highlighter out and taking all the best ideas from uh uh, this conversation today has been yeah. really, really enlightening. So uh, it leaves us just to uh, thank you for uh, again for taking part. And uh, we hope that if the opportunity to uh, reconvene this conversation again at some point in the future comes, you'd be uh, happy to step back our way. Yeah. Or face Absolutely. to face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Face to face. Come and see our hybrid spaces, Brian, in the person. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. It's been really good to talk. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I mentioned in that uh, conversation, gentlemen, that uh, I'd be really looking forward to the transcript and getting my highlighter out because I think there's so many tips, things that uh, we could all uh, gain from that conversation with Brian. Absolutely. Um, so as we usually do at the end of these uh, these podcasts, let's let's take away. I mean, you know, so many reflections that we might take from that. But let's go for let's go for one one or so, one or more each. Um, Ivan, yeah, uh, thanks, Dominic. Uh, well, so many as you said, but being uh, in this uh, on the other side of the lectern, as I usually say, um, I love what Brian mentioned in terms of the uh, reusing of the content. So what he said, actually, you, you create a content that's appropriate for, for any context and then not to deprive people who are not attending at the moment, the material that you have created in your moment of inspiration is going to serve well on both counts. So 
people who attended your class are going to be uh, profiting from contact face-to-face, -face, while people who are attending asynchronously is go are going to be in position to enjoy it and use it afterwards. James, how about you? Yeah, I had a couple of points. One very briefly was this on the topic of equity and the equivalence of learning experiences, this idea of giving students a reason to show up. And that chimed with me from a key message from Professor Peter Jameson uh, last year, talking about the importance of the campus environment, uh, but also how that synchronizes with the online learning experience and giving students a reason to come on campus might not be just to sit in a lecture theatre and not talk to anyone, but to mm. sit in a study space, go online for a class, and then talk to their colleagues without moving, apart from going to get a coffee. So I really yeah. like that. Uh, and secondly, the last question we put to him about the future, um, and we could almost have had a whole episode of on, I think, on the future of hybrid teaching. I think you've yeah. got quite a few answers out of him, but yeah, I apart from the idea of new student audiences and perhaps reaching to different markets you know new geographical areas for attracting students it's this idea of developing a new pedagogy for the future of hybrid teaching that struck a real chord yeah that's a strand that's run through quite a few of these conversations isn't it indeed um so uh professor martin weller from the open university has recently published a book called metaphors of edtech and uh there was a really nice metaphor that Brian used in this conversation as well as the idea of the bridge and he says he's still on the bridge mm. some of his colleagues had crossed it the bridge from fully in-person teaching to fully online teaching whereas he's in the middle there somewhere some of them have crossed the bridge and gone all the way back again some of them have stayed on there uh, and you know he's gone to different locations on it as well I mean I like I like using metaphors in talking about edtech I I've often used um, the the first lockdowns as described them as a swimming pool where everybody was forced to you know, to jump in the pool and learn to swim at short notice and you know some people were confident some people were floundering but uh, yeah we we know that one so the bridge idea that that that's very very similar to the question you put to most of our guests is where do you see yourself on the spectrum yeah hybrid teaching flying or fighting yeah yeah exactly uh, yeah yeah exactly we lost that question we lost yeah. the question but we've got the bridge now not the spectrum oh <laughs> interesting yeah so from spectrum to bridge that brings us to the end of episode 14 of teaching here and there uh, there are many ways you can get in touch with us there are teaching here and there podcast at gmail.com we are on twitter at that hybrid pod and of course if you want to help other people find our podcast you can give us a rating on apple podcast spotify or you can even write us a review and tell us what you thought about this conversation or any others and something we've long been trying to get off the ground but have often struggled if you go to our web page at anchor.fm slash teaching here and there you can leave us an audio message and that's a way to appear in the podcast yourself. So it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back with you for episode 15. Teaching Here and There is a podcast brought to you by PSR Production. It's available to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, Spotify and any web browser. <laughs>